Join me, if you would, just in a, a moment of prayer. Uh, Lord, as we come to worship you by meditating upon your word, may this be an occasion where, through your Holy Spirit, you shape our lives to better reflect the nature of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the early days of the church, some believers wanted Gentile converts to adopt the status of immigrants under the Old Testament covenant. And consequently, they wanted Gentile male converts to be circumcised. Having opposed these calls at the Church Council of Jerusalem, as reported earlier in Acts 15, we now see Paul convincing Timothy whose mother was a Jew, but whose father was a Gentile, to be circumcised. What's going on here? The question of the relationship between the, the Jewish laws and Gentile converts to Jesus went right to the heart of the Gospel. Was salvation a matter of faithful allegiance to Jesus? Full stop. Or did it also require allegiance to the Jewish covenant and its requirements? Well, according to believers in the party of the Pharisees, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved, Acts 15.1. However, the Holy Spirit clearly led the apostles and the elders of the church to reject this pharisaical position. They agreed that Gentiles could embrace salvation in Christ without joining the Old Covenant and thus without physical circumcision. As Paul would put the matter later in Romans 2.29, he says, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit not by the written code. Well, when the council declared that circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation, it also declared that Gentiles would do well to observe certain laws from the Old Testament governing the behaviour of Gentile residents in Israel, as spelled out in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. Now, following these laws wasn't given as a prerequisite for salvation, but as a loving, voluntary concession to Jewish Christians. The moral principle behind the Council's declaration was this. Don't compromise Christ's gospel of grace, but be willing to adopt unnecessary yet permissible practices that others follow if this will further the cause of Christ's kingdom. In other words, the restrictions required by the Jerusalem Council aren't a matter of earning salvation, but of Christian love. As theologian William J. Larkin Jr. comments, we must live out a mutual respect for our differences, even to the extent of using our freedom to forego what is permissible in other circumstances. So, abstaining from strangled meat, one of the requirements, 
doesn't qualify you for eternal life. After all, to the pure, all things are pure, Titus 1.15. And again, everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected as food if it is received with thanksgiving. It's 1 Timothy 4.4. But how can strangled meat be received with thanksgiving if its reception would be a barrier to the Jewish Christians in your congregation sharing in the communion meal with you? To stand on one's rights in such a situation isn't at all analogous to Peter and Paul and James standing up for the principle of salvation by faith alone against the pharisaical wing of the church. Rather, to stand on one's rights in such a situation is simply to fail to love your neighbour. It is to fail to exhibit the love of Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Philippians 2. As Christ's siblings, Christians should likewise adopt the role of the servant. Do not act out of selfish ambition or conceit, writes Paul in Philippians, But with humility, think of others as being better than yourselves. Now, having been part of the delegation that delivered this message to the church in Antioch, Paul suggests to Barnabas that they visit the other churches that they'd helped establish to strengthen them with this same unifying message of grace and love. Barnabas agrees and suggests they take along John Mark. Unfortunately, this leads to a sharp disagreement. Now, it was this John Mark whose mother owned the house in Jerusalem in which the disciples met when the Apostle Peter was imprisoned, and whom church tradition says acted as secretary for Peter in Rome after his angelic escape from jail. He'd have been helpful to Paul and Barnabas as someone used to translating Peter's teaching stories about Jesus to Greek-speaking audiences. However, having previously accompanied them from uh, Antioch as their helper earlier in Acts, you can look this up in Acts 13.5, Upon reaching Perga in Pamphylia, John Mark had left them to return to Jerusalem about 48 AD. Now, perhaps Mark had heard on the grapevine that following the death of King Herod Agrippa I, Peter had returned to Jerusalem. And perhaps he saw this as his opportunity to share with Peter this idea he had of writing a biography of Jesus. Call it Mark's Gospel. Indeed, I suspect that after the council, Mark returned to Rome with Peter in order to publish his Gospel there, inadvertently precipitating the rioting amongst Jews, which led to their expulsion from Rome circa 49 AD. Now this expulsion may explain why Mark was subsequently available again for another missionary journey. 
Now, be all that as it may, and there is some speculation in there, some time after returning to Antioch, Paul suggests this second missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to give his cousin, John Mark, have a look at Colossians 4.10, another chance. Paul, who saw John Mark's leaving them at Perga as an act of disloyalty, didn't want to re-enlist his aid. Well, according to theologian I. Howard Marshall, this is a classic example of the perpetual problem of whether to place the interests of the individual or of the work as a whole first. Well, Paul and Barnabas hit on a solution that doubles their missionary reach. While Paul chose Silas and left, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for what actually was his native country of Cyprus. I would say that Luke's inclusion of this incident of disagreement in his history of the early church does at least demonstrate that he isn't in the business of depicting unrealistic plaster saints. And it is good to know that the rift between Paul and Barnabas and Mark was temporary. Paul refers to Barnabas in 1 Corinthians in collegial terms. Likewise, Paul references Mark as a fellow worker in Philemon. And in Colossians 4.10, asks the church to welcome him should he visit them. Moreover, it was Mark, together with Timothy, that Paul wanted with him at the end of his life. We'll look at 2 Timothy 4.11. Talking of Timothy, see what I did there? Having met him in Lystra, Paul circumcised him because the Jews who lived in that area all knew that his father was a Greek. Although Timothy's mother was Jewish and so he was a Jew, it seems that his father had prevented his son's circumcision as a baby. And so by having him circumcised now, Paul clarifies Timothy's identity as a faithful Jew and not an apostate. Paul's ministry in Acts typically begins in Jewish synagogues. So his circumcision of Timothy is all about the Jewish reception of the gospel. Now, Timothy's willingness to participate in this procedure as an adult in an age without anaesthetics or antibiotics is a sacrificial act of bravery. Paul's plan didn't contradict the declaration of the Jerusalem Council, for he wasn't imposing circumcision upon Timothy as a precondition of salvation. Rather, he was requesting it of him as a servant-hearted concession for the sake of the gospel, for the reception of the gospel amongst Jews. And it was a concession that helped Timothy to become Paul's most valuable co-worker over the span of the next 15 years. He worked alongside in the, Paul in the evangelization of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berra, Corinth, Ephesus... According to Paul, writing of Timothy in Philippians 2.22, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So Paul's actions were entirely in accord 
with both the letter and the spirit of the Jerusalem Council, and indeed with Paul's own practice laid out in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 following, where he says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I'm not free for God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. These principles have a continuing application, of course. If we are presented with an opportunity to humbly forego our rights for the sake of others by adopting a permissible restriction, especially one that they themselves follow, we should embrace that opportunity. So, for, for example, um, if we wanted to invite our Muslim neighbours round for a summer barbecue, we should think about cooking pre-stunned halal meat or having a vegetarian barbecue. I'm sure you can think of other contemporary issues that would be illuminated by the principles behind today's reading. In all such situations, we should ask ourselves, does this act that we're being asked to do, does it compromise the gospel or merely my convenience? Is this act permissible even if it isn't necessary? Will this act further the cause of Christ's kingdom? And in light of our answers to these questions, let's pray together that God's Holy Spirit would help us to rejoice in acting as Jesus, our servant King, calls us to act. In the name of Christ, Amen.